0: Good morning. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk 3, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Uh, We're on week 7 of not gathering as a church on Sundays, and this will never be normal. It will never feel natural. Uh, We as elders feel convinced we're doing the right thing in terms of obviously not meeting to honor the guidelines we've been given from uh, our state and local governments. And... um, We're resolved to continue uh, weekend by weekend posting sermons like this, but it just makes us long for the day when we can be back together. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, we're looking this morning at the final four verses of the book of Habakkuk. We come to the end this morning of our series in Habakkuk. It's just been four uh, short weeks, but we're coming to the end of the book this morning. Uh, I want us to read in a moment Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19 Uh, And I just want to kind of summarize what we've seen in the book thus far to remind you of where we've been in Habakkuk chapter 1, it begins with this prayer, this lament or complaint from Habakkuk in verses 1 through 4, Habakkuk uh, is seeing the wickedness of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he asks God to address the wickedness of Judah. And then in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, God says He's about to do something that will confound Habakkuk, that He he will not exactly understand. But essentially, God is going to bring judgment upon Judah by raising up a, a wicked nation, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come and to take Judah captive, and that will be God's means of judgment upon Judah's sins. Then in chapter 1, verse 12, on through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk then responds to the Lord with a recognition of God's sovereignty and of Habakkuk's own faith in God, but he, he questions God's mode of justice and, and questions why God would raise up a nation more wicked than Judah to be the instrument by which God brings justice upon Judah. Judah. And then in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, God announces that he will judge Babylon, uh, that he's not going to overlook the sins of that wicked nation, that though he's going to use them to judge Judah, he will one day judge Babylon and no wickedness will go unpunished. And he also announces that those who are righteous, presumably like Habakkuk and believing Jews in Judah like him, they will live by faith. They will persevere through this great trial, this great hardship, this dark providence by faith in God. And then we have in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Habakkuk's prayer of faith, or what we could call the hymn of faith. Habakkuk acknowledges that though there may be some things he does not understand, he will trust God. And the reason he will trust God is because he knows things about God and about God's nature and his character. And he reflects back upon God's faithfulness in the past, both to judge Israel's enemies and also to deliver the people of Israel. And Habakkuk says he he will trust God because God has been faithful in times past. He knows who God is, he will look to God through this trial, through this dark providence. In faith to God. Now we get to verses 16 through 19, which I believe is is the main message of the book of Habakkuk. The whole book up to this point has led us to these verses. What does Habakkuk want to leave us with? The people of God. Please follow along as I read Habakkuk 3 verses 16 through 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Three points this morning. The first two I'll just briefly touch on. And the third is where I want to spend most of our time. Point number one. Habakkuk fears what God's providence will bring. Habakkuk fears what God's providence will bring. Verse 16, uh, contemplating the coming invasion of Babylon, which we believe was probably about 30 years or so off from when Babylon or excuse you, when Habakkuk wrote this book. Contemplating that coming providence, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me." In essence, Habakkuk is saying, I'm afraid. The Lord has revealed to me that something miserable is coming. Something terrible is coming. And I'm afraid. I don't like what the Lord has revealed. I don't want this providence to befall me and my countrymen. I don't want to come under captivity. I do not want to endure the bloodthirstiness and the wickedness and the evil of the Chaldeans. And as I contemplate what is sure to come, the Lord has revealed will in fact come. I'm scared. My lips quiver, my legs tremble beneath me. Remember what I said a few sermons ago, Habakkuk's Uh, book is is very raw. It's very human. It's very earthy. Uh, Habakkuk feels and emotes and experiences things. And as he contemplates what's to come, uh, Babylon coming and invading uh, Judah, uh, in his humanity, he candidly admits, I'm afraid of what's coming. Just a quick observation for us before moving from this point. Uh, I want us to appreciate I think Habakkuk's conduct here and his posture here is not something the Bible would censure. I think Habakkuk's posture is actually commendable. And so I just want us to appreciate at this point, it's not inappropriate for us to feel. It's not inappropriate for us as a response to God's providence in our lives to cry it's not inappropriate for us to be human. God does not expect us to walk through the world and walk through the trials and storms of this life as impassive, uh, unemotive Stoics. It doesn't require us to be rocks as we endure uh, this life. I, I just want to say that because... With all that we've seen about the, the, the priority of faith and the need to persevere by faith and to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances, and even when our questions go unanswered, uh, I don't think the Bible is teaching us that it's wrong for us to feel very human emotions in response to the providences that befall us. Habakkuk is candid enough to say, I'm afraid of what's to come physiologically. My legs are shaking underneath me. My lips are quivering. Now, I don't think, as we, if we try to put ourselves in Habakkuk's shoes, I don't think we have any difficulty understanding this reaction from Habakkuk. A bloodthirsty and wicked nation is coming to invade his people. I think we would be afraid. Also, we don't struggle, I think, to understand this reaction. But it's where he goes from here that that we need most to appreciate. So that leads me to point number two. Uh, Point number two Uh, Habakkuk fears what God's providence is bringing. Number two Habakkuk nonetheless trusts in God's promise. He nonetheless trusts in God's promise. God has told Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2. That this judgment is going to be for reproof, and that this judgment is going to be temporary, and that eventually Babylon themselves, and indeed all evildoers, will be judged by God. And so Habakkuk says, verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, and I think he means at the same time. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's saying, I I will quietly wait for God to fulfill his promise. He has told me that judgment will come upon Babylon and that God's people will be delivered. He's told me this. He's promised me this. I'm going to quietly wait. Habakkuk. Though he feels fear and very human emotions as he contemplates the evasion of the Babylonians is still marked by a certain resolution, a certain faith-filled acceptance in what God's hand is bringing, and a certain quietness of spirit. He will wait for the Lord even as this trial comes upon him and those he loves. I'm reminded of the words of David in Psalm 131. Uh, there, David says, my heart is not proud, O Lord my God, my, my eyes are not raised up. I don't concern myself with things too great for me. But what? I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me, David says. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. He's saying that in the midst of unanswered questions, in the midst of difficult circumstances and trying providences, in the midst of things I don't quite understand and contemplate, I'm going to still and quiet my soul. There's a certain quietness, a stillness in waiting on the Lord that the Bible would commend. Habakkuk is going to wait upon God to fulfill his word. He will wait with hope that God will one day bring deliverance, that God will do as he has promised, and God has promised That this captivity will be temporary. God has promised that Babylon will be judged. His word is true, and Habakkuk says, I'll wait. Even though I don't like this, even though I don't want this, even though I tremble at the sound of what's to come, yet there's this composure, this acceptance, this trust in God to fulfill his word. Again, just a quick observation for us at this point. The posture of waiting upon God to fulfill His Word is one of the greatest expressions of faith. As we walk through trial and as we walk through hardship, we should seek to be possessed by this sort of quietness and composure. A sort of quietness and composure in the midst of trial and sorrow that is only the fruit of faith in God. See, see the, the trembling... And the quivering lip and the fear and the anxiety and the, the, the anguish over what's to come. Well, that's coming from the sound of the footprints of the enemy, the Babylonians, who will invade Judah. But, but where is the quietness and the composure coming from? Where's the peace? Where's the faith coming from? That's coming from God. So Habakkuk in his humanity experiences fear, but even as he does, there's this peace, there's this trust that comes this waiting upon God in quiet acceptance because God has proven Himself faithful and therefore I'll trust in Him even as I endure this thing that will be so painful and hard for me. I will wait on the Lord and trust in His promise. Now point number three. Uh, Point number three, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Point number one is that Habakkuk fears what God's providence will bring. Point number two, Habakkuk nonetheless trusts in God's promise. Now consider with me what I think is the essential message of the book, Habakkuk, excuse me, heading number three. The heading is this, Habakkuk finds joy in God in the midst of trial. Habakkuk finds joy in God in the midst of trial. Let's look again at verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vines, so important. Habakkuk is capturing something that is so fundamental and frankly so prominent in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Habakkuk is using poetic language, but I think his meaning is nonetheless clear. Here's the essence of what I think Habakkuk is saying. This is my paraphrase or my summary of what Habakkuk is saying in verses 17. Through 19. And this is really the burden of this sermon. Habakkuk is saying essentially this God is more to me than anything in the world. Therefore, when I am deprived of all other earthly joys, I will still possess my joy because I still have God who is all my joy. God is more to me than anything in the world. Therefore, when I am deprived of all other earthly joys, I will still possess my joy because I still have God who is all my joy." You can put it mathematically. God plus nothing equals everything. I have God, His person, an experiential walk with Him, knowledge of Him, a relationship with Him, eternal life and eternal pleasures at His right hand, and I have nothing else. More than that, I'm stripped of every other earthly joy. God plus nothing equals everything. Or you could change up the equation. God minus every other earthly joy equals everything. Habakkuk is saying that if the coming judgment of God upon Judah strips him of everything, material prosperity, his belongings, treasured relationships, the very nationhood of Judah, if there's nothing for me after this providence befalls us, I still have God and therefore I still have my joy intact and unimpaired. I have everything because I have God and after all God the Lord is is my strength and my salvation and my song. He's the one from whom I draw my joy and my life and my support and my happiness and therefore my joy, even if deprived of everything else I hold dear, my joy is unmoved. Habakkuk doesn't say, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, then I will find a way to make do. He doesn't say I'll learn to go without. Somehow I will cope. Somehow I'll bite my lip and press on. No, he says, I will, what? I'll rejoice. The Babylonians are invading. They're putting Habakkuk, and we don't know if Habakkuk was married and had a family, maybe he was, putting Habakkuk and his family and his loved ones into bondage, and Habakkuk's rejoicing. He's finding, experiencing joy in God, even as he suffers under a brutal nation. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You take everything away from this man. And what is he left with? He says, I'm left with joy. I'm left rejoicing. I'm left with deep, lasting, all-satisfying, delight-giving, pleasure-producing joy in God. What kind of joy is that, and how can we get it? Like, Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want to taste something of this kind of joy where you could be stripped of everything? And yet be rejoicing, finding deep and lasting pleasure and delight in God. The sort of joy and pleasure and delight that's not tangled up in materialism and physical prosperity, joy that doesn't depend on things or people, joy that transcends money and sex and approval and status and relationships. Where does that kind of joy come from? Because I've got to have it. You feel that way? Listening to Habakkuk, take away all my money, take away all my relationships, take away the fruit on the vine, the food in the field, take everything away. What do I have? Bliss, joy, unmoved, fixed forever in God. Habakkuk says, I have everything in God. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. If God is the source of my joy, then my joy can't be touched because God can never be moved from me. My joy is ultimately bound up in my spouse or my kids or my job or my success or a vacation or novels. Or watching netflix or doing puzzles or in any other thing it can be taken away from me in an instant but if my joy is in god bound up completely in him then it will never be moved it can never be taken from me even when everything else is taken from me you remember when we talked about this back in the series on john jesus words to his disciples in the upper room in john 16 Remember he's talking to them about the sorrow that they're going to endure when Jesus is taken into custody and crucified. And then he tells them that upon his resurrection that, that they will be given joy and no one will take their joy away from them. And God knows people tried. Just reflect on what those apostles endured in their lives. And yet they had this joy. They had reserves of joy that couldn't be taken away from them even if everything else was taken away from them. My friend, I want you to have this kind of joy. I want to have this kind of joy myself. I want us as a church to fix our feet on the solid rock of joy in God. I want us as a church, as individual members, as a a corporate body to dig deep wells of joy. Deep wells that go deep down all the way into God, and draw that spring of life, that spring of joy out of God Himself. We got to dig deep wells, wells that go deeper than money, deeper than shopping, and deeper than sex, and deeper than the sham pleasures of pornography. Deeper than golf, deeper than vacations at the beach, deeper than picnics with the grandkids, deeper than pizza night with the family. You were made, my brother, my sister, to experience a deeper, richer, fuller, lasting, immutable, all-satisfying joy in God. Your soul was made for that. If I can be perfectly candid for a moment, As I pray for our church, think about our church, and as I thought about this sermon and application to our church body, I'm just being completely open with you. One One of my fears and concerns about our church, we live in the most comfortable nation in the world. We live in a very comfortable city, a very comfortable part of our city. Our church is made up predominantly of fairly healthy, well-ordered families, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's indeed wonderful. We aspire to have biblically-ordered, well-ordered families, healthy families, and we have many pleasures that we enjoy in connection with our families and in connection with living in beautiful Winston-Salem and in connection with living in the comfortable United States in 2020. My fear for us and my fear for myself and my wife and the family that I lead is that we will drink from the wells, a family movie night, a family vacation at the beach, of picnics with grandparents, and our soul will be so satisfied in those earthly joys that we'll sort of just forget about God. And our church involvement will become, well, this is what well-ordered, clean, healthy families do. We go to church, and everything about church life kind of serves our goals in our family, and and, and this is it. Having this neat, well-ordered family and the delights and pleasures that come with it, this is what I'm after. This is what life is. My joy comes from this. My brother, my sister, you were meant for so much more than that you got to dig deeper wells than a family party. Does your joy go deeper than that? Do the wells go deep down into God himself? To, To change the metaphor, I want us to have deep roots. A, a, a root structure that goes deep down into God and draws all this life and this vitality and and and, and, and joy from God Himself. So that when the storms of this life blow upon you and, and the thunder crashes around you and lightning comes, you're not going to blow away with the wind because you've built your your structure on some unfirm foundation and and haven't developed the proper root structure, but rather when the winds come and the lightnings crash and the thunder roars, you're going to stand like a mighty oak. Even if some branches and leaves blow away. You're going to stand because your roots have gone down into God. Your joy, your faith, your hope is stayed not upon something that could so easily be stripped away from you, not on some earthly joy. Your joy is fixed and unmoved upon God himself, and you draw your life, you draw your breath, you draw your joy from the Lord. I want us to taste something of this kind of joy because it's better than anything in the world. Even the greatest pleasures of this life, greatest pleasures this life has to offer are only a faint reflection of that deeper joy. Only this joy can satisfy. And what's more, it's only this kind of deep joy in God that will allow you to make it through dark days. You have to have deep wells. You've got to have deep roots. You've got to have a firm place to build your house upon. You want to make God look big? We love to talk about big God theology in our church. All the world was meant to redound to the glory of God. You want to make God look big? You want to glorify God and magnify God and adore God and worship God? Enjoy Him. And enjoy Him especially. Enjoy Him most when all other earthly joys are taken away from you. Find your joy in God. That makes God look big. You take everything away from this man. You take everything away from this woman. And she's rejoicing. Because she's drawing her joy from God. When there is no fruit on the vine, when the fields have no food, and yet we still find joy in God, that's when God looks big. That's when God gets glory. I have nothing else but God, and that is all my soul wants. Asaph understood this. I was pressed at one point in my life to have a life verse. I picked Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's none I desire beside you. Does it mean that Asaph didn't have a wife? Does it mean that Asaph didn't enjoy the beach? didn't mean that Asaph didn't enjoy good food. But if we're talking about ultimate joy, what is my joy rested upon? Where do I find it ultimately? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's none I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart and my relationships and my bank account and my country, my church even, whatever. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my life and my portion. I'm I'm tasting what God has to give me. He's my portion. My joy is in the Lord. I have learned what it means, Psalm 16, to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm, I'm eating those pleasures that are at His right hand forevermore. God is my strength and my portion. Forever. That's real joy. Lasting joy. Joy that satisfies. And can you see, can you appreciate how a text like the one we have in Habakkuk 3, or that one in Psalm 73, demolishes the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Send in $1,000 to this ministry, you'll get your promotion. Send in $1,000 and you'll be healed of your chronic health problems. And I'm not just thinking about the in-your-face, brazen, pathetic, embarrassing health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that sort of bald garbage that we find on television. I'm talking also about softer forms of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There is a soft form of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel prevalent among evangelicals that, that essentially teaches that if you follow God, if you... Embrace Jesus and become his disciple. Like things are just going to fall into place for you. someone you know, before I followed Christ, I was miserable. I was single. I was alone. I was pathetic. And then I followed Christ and things just started happening for me. You know, I met a girl, you know, she married me and uh, then I got a job. And, and I'm telling you, follow Christ and things will just go well for you. Best case scenario, there's a sense in which that can be true. You follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and you follow the virtues that he lays out for you, and something like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, and you become a more attractive mate, and maybe a girl will go out with you. You follow the way of the Lord Jesus, and, and you observe the virtues of Christianity, and yes, you become a more attractive employee. But the Bible in no place teaches that following Christ will de facto produce for us a better set of life circumstances. It will not produce for us, de facto, more pleasantness in our life. It didn't do that for Habakkuk. Didn't do that for John the Baptist. Didn't do that for the Apostle Paul. The gospel does not teach that by virtue of following Jesus and giving our life to Him, we're going to, in this life, be introduced to a bunch of pleasant circumstances and be immune to hardship and trial. In fact, the Lord Jesus promises hardship and trial for those who follow Him. He guarantees the hatred and opposition of the world. He introduces us to spiritual warfare with the evil one that will involve the the dawning of Ephesians 6 armor to fight in our warfare. No hardship comes for the believer. The gospel never ensures pleasantness of circumstances. But what the gospel gives us, what faith in Christ gives us, and the knowledge of God gives us, is joy that can't be touched or taken away from, from us, and joy that is not tangled up in material things, joy that doesn't depend upon pleasant, congenial circumstances. It's found in God. God. Who is our reward and our inheritance forevermore. And yes, we will one day find ourselves in the pleasantest of circumstances in paradise forever with him. But we're not guaranteed that sort of earthly pleasure in this life. Our joy is found in God himself. And that is a greater joy than any sort of happy circumstance this world can give us. Now, in the few minutes that remain, I just want to ask this question. I've tried to characterize and qualify the joy that Habakkuk's talking about in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Maybe you've heard me talk about this kind of joy, and you're looking at your own life, or you're looking at this kind of joy, and you're like, I want, I want this. I want those deep wells. I don't want my joy to be locked up in the next family vacation, as pleasant as it might be. I want to have joy in God so that I can stand and rejoice and find joy in Him in the evil day. So I want to ask this question, how can you and I get this kind of joy? How can we have this kind of joy? in God? Well, you certainly have to know God. You have to come into relationship with God by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to come to believe on God's own Son. Repent of your sins, put your trust in Him, and follow Him, and He will be a mediator to you between God and man. But i want more than that. How as a Christian do I cultivate this kind of joy in God? Here's how you get this joy. Here's, here's my answer, and I'll elaborate on it. You get it through experiential knowledge of God. You want to be like Habakkuk, you want this kind of joy, you you come to possess this kind of joy through an experiential walk with God, experiential knowledge of God. Habakkuk's joyful posture arises out of deep experience with God. He he has contemplated God. He has wrestled with God. He has considered God's dealings with His people in the past. He knows the Word of God. He has prayed to God. He has developed experiential knowledge of God. You see, you can't get this kind of joy from just casually listening to a few good sermons. You can't get this kind of joy from occasionally reading a happy, clappy kind of devotional that just cherry-picks a few feel-good verses and doing that once or twice a week. You get this kind of joy from diving deep into a relationship with God in which you come to know Him as your strength and your portion and your all-satisfying source of joy. You learn to do, as J.I. Packer says, to dig deep and to dwell deep, to abide deep. In God, Let me tell you how to arrive at this kind of joy. Get caught up in God. Do as Jonathan Edwards says. Roll your soul up into God. Be every day in His Word. Pray to Him without ceasing. Give your all to worshiping Him. Throw yourself into the middle of the assembly of God. And give yourself to worshiping God. And serving the people of God. Give your Self and your intellectual and emotional and spiritual energy to contemplating God and meditating upon God and talking to God, longing for God, spending time with the people of God. You give yourself to an experiential relationship with God, and then this is what you do. You go through some sort of trial or hardship in your life, the sort of thing that, that would cause you to tremble like Habakkuk and fear like Habakkuk can be confounded with unanswered questions like Habakkuk, and then you fall back upon the reserves you've built up of knowledge of God. And you find him to be all satisfying and to delight and thrill your soul. And even when you're deprived of something that's so precious to you, you find that you have something in him. You develop experience with him. Just like you develop experience with any sort of person. You walk with God. You walk with him when the sun is shining and when it's stormy. You walk with him experientially through the sorrows and trials of your life, and more and more you find your soul being enlarged and you find your, your appetite being more satisfied in God, even as you're deprived of earthly joys. And let me just say, my brother, my sister, especially you younger Christians, or You older Christians who have been in the way for some time, but are disappointed with your lack of progress and maturity in the faith, it should be no surprise that the most joyful Christians, the happiest people I know, the Christians that seem to persevere best through hardship. The Christians who have learned to wait contentedly and joyfully upon the Lord, you see them go through some sort of trial or hardship, and you see their posture and their joy in God, and you look at that, and you want that, and you admire that, and you're attracted to that. People aren't tossed to and fro by every little thing life throws at them. Those people, it's no accident, it's no coincidence, they happen to be the people who know their Bibles They happen to be the people who have thought deeply about God. The people who know what it is to rise early or stay of late, to pray often to God. The kind of people who have given themselves night and day to an experiential walk with God. It's no surprise they're the sort of people who are resolved that wild horses wouldn't drag them away from the assembly of God. But they want to be there when the people of God gather because they recognize God is my strength and my portion, and i got to dig deep wells, and i got to cultivate deep roots. I want something of this joy and pleasure and satisfaction in God, and I've got I to invest in it and pursue it. I must cultivate an experiential knowledge of God. No surprise that those who stand like oaks in the midst of trial are those who have gone deep with God you can't cut corners. There's no shortcut. You want to know something of the joy of Habakkuk or something of the joy of an apostle Paul who in prison could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Men like Peter going skipping merrily along because they had been maligned and attacked for their faith. You want to have something of that kind of joy? You want to be like one of those untouchable men or women of the faith? Go deep with God, deep with God in his word, deep with God in prayer, deep with God in reflection and meditation and contemplation about God, deep with God amidst the assembly of God's people, Lord's day after Lord's day. Invest in a real experiential walk with the living God to experience this kind of joy, the kind of joy that doesn't depend upon things or people or pleasant circumstances, the kind of all satisfying joy that is bound up in the person and being of God, it only becomes ours through an experiential walk with God in which we come to understand and enjoy his person better and better. Now let me just clarify something that might be in a few of your minds. When I am talking about God as the superior joy to all other earthly joys, and when I say that God plus nothing equals everything, when I say we have everything even when we are deprived of the most treasured earthly joys because we have everything in God, just understand I'm not trying to depreciate the value of the earthly joys we experience. I'm not telling you that you should stop finding joy in your family or in your work or in a vacation or in golf or the beach or food or something like that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the solution to finding joy in God is just don't care about anything else. Just divorce your pleasure from people or other pleasures. I'm not saying that. here's what I do mean, enjoying God like this, finding your soul's delight and satisfaction in God is the way to properly enjoy every other joy that God gives you. All other joys, you know God like this, He's the well. He's, he's where my roots are going. You know God like this as your source of joy. All other joys are put in their proper perspective. Now, the intimate love of a spouse is not your salvation. It's not the end all for you. As long as I got this man by my side or this woman by my side, that's everything to me. No, no, no. no. Now... You learn to enjoy the love of a spouse as like a beam from the sun, whose warmth you you feel and enjoy, and then you learn to trace the ray back up to the source who is God Himself. Now you take a walk, a springtime walk. And hear the birds and see the sky and the sunset or something like that. And and, and you contemplate all this beauty and your your heart is ravished with the joy of this creation. And, And you learn to take a sip, a drink of that kind of joy and then to trace it back to the well who is God Himself. You see all our other pleasures in life that God is pleased to give us. We enjoy them as good gifts from His hand and as reflections of a Father's kindness and as a disclosure of the good nature of a good God. All joys are traced back to Him. So now I I don't need the beach. I need the God who gives me the beach. I don't need even... My beloved children, I need the good God, the loving God, who gives me my children. What I need is God, and then every other joy is situated in my life. Let me close by saying this there are some listening to me rant about joy in God from Habakkuk 3.16-19, some listening to me who are looking for ultimate joy in all the wrong things. So you've set your soul on a relationship or on a job or on some level of achievement or some passing pleasure, that's you, and you're in one of two places. On the one hand, you may have so numbed your senses, you may have so drugged your soul with sinful pleasures as to believe that the passing pleasures of this world are everything. And you have successfully distracted your soul with a sort of contented worldliness. You just rolled your soul up, insulated yourself with the pleasures of this world. You think, this is, this is it. I just want to very directly, candidly, respectfully ask you, my friend, what are you playing at? What are you going for in all of this? How's it really going with your soul? Is this really your plan? Is, is this sort of hedonistic vision the end all for your life? I just need one more hit, one more hit, one more video, one more relationship. I just, I just if I can keep getting it as long as I can, then my soul will be satisfied. And then what? And then, and then you live out your 80 years and you die and you go to hell under the righteous judgment of God. What's your plan? Is that life to you? give me another hit, another video, just give me another paycheck, just give me another night out, another binge, give me, give me, keep it coming, and I'll do this as long as I can and then I'll die. My friend, you are meant for so much more. That sort of vanity, that sort of nothing, vapor kind of life is not the life you're called to and the life you're meant to live. I want to call you to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God's own Son, to repent and turn from those sinful pleasures, to trust in the Lord Jesus, and to enter into a relationship with the God you were meant to commune with for the rest of your life, the God you are meant to enjoy for all eternity. Have done with those sham pleasures. Come to the fountain. On the other hand, you may be listening to this message, and you may be giving yourself to other pleasures, but you're not really satisfied with them, and you are beginning to find them to be strangely hollow and dry and dull. To you, my friend, I say that there's something deeper. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel. You look for love and joy and peace and salvation and the things of this world, you're going to feel burnt out. Maybe you can distract yourself for a time, but, but, but when you lie down at the end of the day, you're asking yourself, is this really it? I'm parched. I'm all dried up. I want more. To you I say, there is something deeper. There is in God pleasures forevermore that can thrill and delight and ravish your soul for all eternity, eternal life that cannot be taken away from you. But to have this sort of pleasure in God, my friend, you must give up everything. You must turn from your sin. You must embrace God's provision of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn and repent and believe on God's Son. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it.